Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website, isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org to follow the science on marijuana. Hey there and welcome back. Get ready for an endemic conversation of high truths and drugs and addiction. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. What is endemic? epidemic, pandemic. It seems that every headline in the news is a crisis. So let's review some definitions. The CDC defines epidemic as an unexpected rise in the number of disease cases in a geographical area. It does not have to be contagious. Fentanyl deaths are an epidemic. What's a pandemic? Well, COVID-19, of course. The World Health Organization declares a pandemic when a disease growth is exponential and covers several countries and populations. The difference between epidemic and pandemic is not the severity of the disease, but the rate of spread. Pandemic is international, and epidemic is large, but contained. Endemic means that a disease is consistently present, but limited to a particular region. Malaria, for example, is endemic in certain countries. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, I'm Dr. Marcus Wong, Chief of Emergency Medicine at Scripps Mercy San Diego. Thank you, Dr. Lev, for all the great work you've done over the years to help curb the opiate epidemic in our country. And thank you, Dr. Frieden, for your service at the CDC and other organizations. I have a question for Dr. Frieden. In May of 2022, the Union Tribune in San Diego published an article reporting that homelessness in San Diego has increased by 10% since January of 2020. Most research show one-third of those who are homeless have problems with alcohol and or illicit drug use. We also know that 20 to 25 percent of the homeless suffer from some form of severe mental health issue. What should our government do about the trifecta of homelessness, drugs, and mental health? Thank you, Dr. Wong. That is a very broad question. Is there a solution to trifecta of homelessness, mental health, and addiction? To answer that, we need someone with a broad experience in public health solutions, someone like who you mentioned, the previous director of the CDC, the Center 
of Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Tom Frieden. Dr. Frieden is a physician trained in internal medicine, infectious diseases, public health, and epidemiology. He is a former director of the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention and former commissioner of the New York City Health Department. Dr. Frieden is currently president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives. You can find Dr. Tom Frieden's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Frieden, welcome to High Truths. It's great to speak with you. You have an all-encompassing knowledge of public health, and I hope we can tap into your experience to talk a bit about drugs. Um, you were my number one hero through the years of the opioid crisis. You actually gave me permission and cover to say no to the daily onslaught of requests for opioid prescriptions that came through the emergency department. That was even before the CDC published the opioid guidelines. So thank you. And uh, I have a question from one of my colleagues to you. He's a director of the emergency department. Um, and he's asking, as the previous CDC director and expert, about public health solutions to the trifecta problem of homelessness, mental health, and addiction. That's a loaded question, but I figure that you are a good person to ask. <laughs> well, um, these are three really difficult problems. And one of the things I've tried to do in my career is focus on what I've called winnable battles, things that are going to be hard. We don't have a foregone conclusion that we're going to succeed, but if we work strategically, if we work effectively, we can make a huge difference. And when it comes to starting with uh, addiction, um, we know that we need to do a much, much better job in this country dealing with, supporting people with, and managing both pain and addiction. So if we say, please don't use an opiate for chronic pain. We're not saying patients should suffer. We're saying we want to reduce patients' pain. We want to reduce their disability. And the evidence shows that avoiding opiates is the best way to do that for chronic pain. Now, uh, when it comes to addiction, I think we need to address that this is a chronic illness. We also need to address the lack of really good data on what works. You know, I'll, I'll never forget an incident in the Capitol House in Georgia where we had a, a rally to uh, support action to get a prescription drug monitoring program for the state, which it didn't have yet, to take action to address the epidemic of opiate overdoses. And we had family members of people who had died there and in my very brief remarks, I rattled off a few things we needed to do, including making buprenorphine much more widely available to people who are addicted. And I was booed by the family members of people who had died because the conception, and I believe misconception, is that it's just replacing one addiction with another. And that's really misguided. Uh, I don't think buprenorphine or any one intervention is the magic switch that's going to fix this. You know, drugs are sometimes called a quick fix, but they don't fix things. And there is no quick fix for our opiate problem. It's going to require addressing things like homelessness and mental illness and better management of pain. One of the things that's a characteristic about public health action that's effective is that it works at multiple levels. On the one hand, we work 
on individual services. And that means things like for addiction, uh, much more use of buprenorphine, much more easy entry into services, much more harm reduction and uh, management and support of patients with naloxone and other interventions. When it comes to homelessness, that includes things like housing first interventions, which have been proven to work. It's, it's so irrational. You know, we say, clean up your act and then we'll get you a house. Well, why don't they have a house? Because it's hard for them to clean up their act when they're living on the street. So the homeless first interventions have been extremely successful, including in the veterans population where veteran homelessness has been drastically reduced throughout the US. And when it comes to mental health issues, I think we have to break down the problems. We don't say, what's your physical health issue? There are lots of different mental health issues and there are different levels of acuity, of severity, of chronicity. When it comes to things like depression, we know that uh, something as simple but powerful as increasing physical activity, 30 minutes of walking every day, is as powerful, brisk walk, not a saunter, but a brisk walk, is as powerful at preventing and treating mild to moderate depression as medications. And that's not to say medications aren't important. I think more people should be on medications for depression, but there are things we can do structurally in society which will make a difference. So the, the sweet spot of public health intervention that works is a combination of individual services for people who will benefit from them and addressing some of the structural factors that make unhealthy choices easier than healthy choices and trying to flip that dynamic so that we manage pain better, we manage addiction better, we manage mental illness better, and we manage homelessness better. And do you think that it's doable or because we just see things getting worse and worse every year? Well, um, I don't think we're going to create utopia where there is no mental illness, no addiction, and no homelessness. Uh, I wish we could, but I don't think utopia is around the corner. I do think we can make things much, much better. I think we can do a vastly better job reducing the, the shackles of addiction that too many people are uh, stuck with. And that includes uh, more measures to protect kids from tobacco and nicotine. That includes more measures to address alcohol, which may be one of the most under-addressed public health problems in this country and globally. I do think we can make a lot of progress addressing mental illness, both by better treating conditions like anxiety and depression, and by improving treatment systems for people with more severe mental illness, like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. For homelessness, this is a very big problem, very challenging to address. And I think here, broader social factors are going to be enormously important. Years ago, I wrote an article uh, that ends up being the most cited article I've ever written about the public health impact pyramid. And in that article, I talk about the five levels of public health action. At the bottom, at the base, are what are sometimes called the social determinants of health. Things like poverty and homelessness, educational levels. One level above that, are public health interventions that change the context so that healthy decisions are the default decisions. We don't tell people to fluoridate their water uh, we, with drops as we do in some countries around the world. We just fluoridate the water if it's appropriate for the water supply in that area. We don't people, tell people not to breathe at work. We get tobacco and other harmful chemicals out of the workplace air. So this, the second 
the second lowest level is core public health actions to change the environment. The third level are short-term public health interventions that can make a really big difference. And those can include things like brief intervention for alcohol use. There's a very interesting story about how this started. There was a, a head and neck surgeon in the United Kingdom who uh, every Friday night, every Saturday night, had to sew up a lot of people's jaws. And after years of doing this, because they were in fights, uh, he got sick of it. And with some of his nursing staff, he developed a very structured motivational interviewing intervention. And it turns out it's quite well proven that this intervention for as little as 15 minutes uh, can address not the people who are very heavy long-term problem drinkers, but many who are uh, just somewhat problematic and really send their risk of bad outcomes from alcohol much further back. So that's the third level is a single intervention, like a vaccination, can have a long-term benefit. It's not just in infectious diseases. The level above that are interventions that we have to do each and every day that the healthcare system has to uh, implement. Things like treating serious mental illness and depression and anxiety effectively. And at the top level, with actually the least impact, but important in many areas, are the exhortations talking to people about things and encouraging behaviors or discouraging behaviors, understanding that that kind of intervention will be much more effective if you take like physical activity. Encouraging people to get physical activity is gonna be much more effective if at the bottom level, people aren't starving and impoverished, so they're worrying about where their next meal is coming from. If at that next level, you have changed the built environment as we call it, so it's easy to walk in bicycle places. At that next level, so they're in touch with uh, someone who can give them uh, the advice, uh, encourage them to be physically active, that next level so that they have a regular provider of primary health care who can track their physical activity and encourage them. So I, I think it's certainly possible to make a lot of progress uh, and we don't have to solve every problem to solve some of the problems. I like your optimism. And I, I think your methodology was successful um, in the opioid prescription crisis. Um, you were um, at the lead in our country when this became a problem and helped drive the solution. And I believe that we're there. I, I, I think that we no longer have an opioid prescription epidemic with um, uh, various measures, including um, the CDC guidelines, the prescription drug monitoring systems. Do you agree with that? And um, what have we learned from that experience? I haven't seen the data closely enough to be able to answer that definitively. I know that inappropriate prescriptions have decreased substantially. I don't think there are no inappropriate prescriptions yet. And I know that we're not doing a good enough job treating addiction, especially treating it with buprenorphine. There may be a role for naltrexone also and other medications and support systems. Uh, one of the things that frustrates me is that uh, we don't have rigorous evaluation of addiction treatment programs and we need it. We need it not because we're critical of those programs or we think they're bad. We need it because we care about patients and we want programs to continuously improve. And you can define the outcome however you want to define it. Are you working? Are you alive? Are you still on medications? Are you still on, or, or drugs, I should say, are you still on illicit drugs or, or abusing illicit drugs? So I, I don't think we're there yet in terms of prescriptions, but we've certainly made a lot of progress. What we're not there yet on is effectively managing pain and effectively managing addiction. 
that we need to do much, much better. It is true that the, the bulk of the opiate problem now is from illicit drugs, particularly fentanyl and also heroin and methamphetamine and mixed drugs as well. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, looking at the prescriptions, people are not dying as much as they were when you were the director of, of a prescription opioids. We definitely need to educate always on safe prescribing of medications. And what the crisis did is bring the medical community to the table as far as addiction, which we never really were. And that's a positive because although we're not there yet, we've made a lot of strides in, in improving addiction treatment, talking about addiction treatment, um, uh, treating pain better without opioids, like regional blocks. I do that all the time in the emergency department. Definitely room for improvement, but we're headed in the right direction. And it, it, the, the medical community, I think, is at at the table, but now we have a worse problem, like the worst in history, which is fentanyl, over 100,000 people dying. I mean, in my area in San Diego, two and a half deaths a day. Yesterday, I worked three overdoses just in my shift, just for me, never mind the other doctors. Um, all right, we need your advice here. Well, a few things to say. First, when it comes to management of patients with pain and addiction, I think we need to go beyond doctors. We need much more physical therapy, much more strengthening exercises, much more team-based care. We need to improve the primary healthcare system so that that's routine and part of our care. Doctors can only do so much when it comes to the kind of challenges that we're seeing. Um, I think in terms of fentanyl, um, not everyone agrees with me on this, but I do think that um, reducing supply is very, very important. And I come to that from the experience with tobacco and alcohol. The strongest predictor of a reduced use of tobacco and alcohol is the cost. And the best way we have to increase the cost of tobacco and alcohol is to tax it. Now, we can't tax illicit fentanyl, but interdiction is important. And uh, I think the more of it we do, the better. The other thing that works very well very well proven in alcohol, probably will be the case in tobacco, is what's called outlet reduction. Uh, the fewer places you can buy it, the less of it you buy. Pretty straightforward. And uh, we need that kind of interdiction in fentanyl. I'm not talking about cracking down on the corner drug dealer or the person who is using, addicted, and selling some to support his or her habit. I'm talking about it going upstream and really putting huge effort into interdiction efforts. So I do think that's, that's extremely uh, important. I, I also think it's important um, in doing that to improve coordination between public health and legal authorities, because there are things that can make a difference there with public health having real-time uh, information on what's happening uh, with, uh, with, um, with uh, the, the illicit market. Uh, I think we can learn more about fatal overdoses by studying more about non-fatal overdoses to figure out how to intervene optimally. Um, we're seeing not just fentanyl, but lots, as you know, of polysubstance overdose, including more and more methamphetamine. Um, I think this gets back to that pyramid again. And it get, I, I like to think a little bit, I'm, I'm a tuberculosis doctor by training, and I like to think a little bit about the, the classic anti-tuberculosis uh, workers of the early 1900s, they worked at both levels. They provided really excellent case management 
of people with tuberculosis, often providing them uh, care in sanatoria so that they stopped infecting others in their household. But they also uh, advocated for cleaning up what were called in New York City, the lung blocks, whole areas where uh, tuberculosis was endemic at a very high level. Um, the New York City Health Department actually outlawed basement apartments, um, outlawed apartments with no windows, uh, bedrooms with no windows, as a way of uh, promoting social change to address this reflection of a social problem. Um, some of these interventions are not within the healthcare field. Some of these interventions are frankly political. But if we're going to do things like expand the earned income tax credit, this is a fantastic anti-poverty program. And we know that you get less poverty, you're going to get less drug use. It doesn't mean that only poor people use drugs, people from every social strata use drugs, but stress increases drug use. And to the extent we can reduce social stresses, we can reduce the demand side in addition to that um, address, addressing the supply side, and we need also to address the treatment side. So these are kind of, if you will, a, the three-legged stool of what we need to do. More interdiction so that fentanyl is harder to get, more expensive, um, more treatment of individuals with buprenorphine and other activities, and more society-wide interventions to reduce the risk of the kind of dislocation that leads to drug use. And some of that means rebuilding social bonds. Some of that means uh, addressing education and jobs. Some of that involves um, looking at the different epidemics of fentanyl use in different places to understand the drivers in different places. One of the things we've learned about infectious diseases is that they, though they each infectious disease is caused by the same microbe, or at least one variant of the same microbe, the characteristics of spread of that disease in a community depend very much on that community. It may be in one demographic or other part, it may be spreading in one way or another, depending on the patterns of that community. And good public health means figuring out the drivers of ill health in each community and then figuring out what can be done to interrupt those drivers of ill health. I love that, and I agree with you 100%. I think supply matters a lot. Um, and and uh, you mentioned tobacco and alcohol, but also prescription drugs. We, you know, we curb the prescription uh, um, opioids, and uh, we didn't treat our way. We didn't buprenorphine our way out of the prescription drug problem. We did it on the on the front end. Um, and I, I, I love what you're saying about uh, connecting public health, public safety. I chair a committee in San Diego called Credo, Community Response to Drug Overdoses. We, we bring together the three Ps, public health, public safety, in order to do prevention. Um, and one thing I've noticed in treating people who overdose on fentanyl uh, is that I haven't met a single one, not one, that didn't start their journey to drugs with um, marijuana, and usually at a young age. And now in the emergency department every day, uh, yesterday, I think I had, I don't know, three, four people who came in with marijuana poisoning, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, um, cannabis-induced psychosis. It's That's, you know, another crisis that we don't talk about, and I don't know, it probably has a political uh, edge, but what is your health policy advice on the issues of, of 
of getting the public to know and understand the risks of marijuana. When I was CDC director, with great difficulty, we posted on the CDC website what is known about the health harms of marijuana and what is not known. And there's way too much not known. Um, I think there are a lot of negative consequences of marijuana use, particularly uh, chronic marijuana use. And that's, they're well documented in terms of reduction in cognitive capacity, reduction in performance. Um, I, I think often of someone I knew growing up who I was close friends with in junior high school. He started using marijuana regularly and I saw him at the high school reunion 25 years later and he'd gone from a very on the ball kid to you know, not accomplishing much uh, and very focused on smoking more pot. Uh, I got to know someone named Dr. Benny Prim, a wonderful, wonderful addiction physician. Uh, he was a patient of my father's and a friend of my father's and of mine. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. He came to our house in Atlanta. He was in a wheelchair on dialysis. He had dedicated his life to dealing with addiction. And the topic of uh, legalization of marijuana came up. And I'll never forget his words. Uh, he had worked in uh, Core City, Brooklyn, in Black communities um, throughout the U.S. And his comment was, this will be the death of our community. And I, I know that there are plenty of people who use marijuana without uh, apparent negative consequences. I know it's commonly used in society. Uh, I don't think we should be locking people up for use of marijuana. What really concerns me, and I don't see a way to stop it given the current legal system and court system in our country, what does concern me is the commercialization of marijuana. It's one thing to decriminalize marijuana so we're not locking up people for minor offenses and doing so in a way that's quite frankly racist. It's quite another thing to have another merchant enterprise preying on uh, selling products that are not healthy. So it's one thing to be growing and selling to your friends. It's quite another if we have big marijuana in addition to big tobacco, big alcohol, and big junk food. That's not a healthy component of our society, but I don't have any easy fixes, so to speak, for uh, how to avoid it. Decriminalization is one thing, but opening the gate to marketing, to marketing that will affect kids, and, and don't believe any companies that say we're not going to market the kids, because uh, we know that the best way to sell things to kids is say we're not going to market the kids. Um, we need to think about reasonable policies that are enforceable and will hold up in court that don't enable marketing of this product. Yeah, I, I feel like it's a deja vu again. You know, at the beginning of my career as a physician, it was like, you know, pushing opioids and nobody gets addicted. And now it's the same thing I see in the same consequences uh, with marijuana and the same parents. You talked about meeting parents who've children died from opioids really early. Um, and I'm sorry you were booed, um, but that's because you were a pioneer and it's difficult to be a pioneer. And right now I see the same thing. It's the same parents and their kids you know, jumped, jumped off a building because of, psych, you know, cannabis-induced psychosis, and, and they're upset. They didn't know. Um, and so, you know, now I'm older, it's okay to be booed now because we know we're on the right side of, of history. Um, someone, someone once told me, a public health leader, if you don't have enemies for the public health work you're doing, you're not doing your job. Uh, yeah, that's right. And, and I have uh, Peter Rosen, who's one of the fathers of emergency medicine, said, get your loving at home. <laughs> 
Um, so, you know, here you are. You, probably the, the number one thing that you're probably asked about uh, these days is the pandemic. And uh, my listeners know that I'm just very jealous of COVID because everything and every the media is always COVID, COVID, COVID. I think it should be fentanyl, fentanyl, fentanyl. And what if we treated drug overdoses as an inf- infectious disease. You are the public health expert. You are an epidemiologist, infectious disease um, specialist. Is it is it reasonable? I say that we need to take an infectious disease approach um, to drugs and overdoses like we did. I mean, we had four cases of Shigella and we opened up a Shigella hotel. In the meantime, a place is lined up with overdoses and no one's talking about that. Well, first off, in 2011, I publicly called Uh, the opiate overdose crisis in the U.S. an epidemic, and it is. Um, uh, Second, um, many years ago, I wrote an article called Asleep at the Switch, that public health is asleep at the switch from primarily infectious diseases to primarily non-infectious diseases, including overdoses that are killing people, including cardiovascular disease and cancer. And I do think that many of the tools of infectious disease control can be applied to the non-communicable diseases. For example, we can think about a social immunization. Are there things that we can do to immunize a community to make it more resistant to addiction? Are there things that we can do uh, when there is on case management? I talked about tuberculosis care, where we track the outcomes of every patient. Can we have that kind of accountability for addiction treatment? I think about, though it's gotten very controversial with uh, COVID, contact tracing, not in the sense of locking people up or quarantining people, but recognizing that people are at risk. There were some very elegant studies done out of the Framingham analysis a few years ago showing that smoking spread like a virus, essentially, within subgroups of social networks. And some of the work on HIV control has used social network testing to offer people testing. We should be thinking the same way about offering treatment, prevention services, Narcan services around cases. We should think of overdoses as sentinel health events that trigger a comprehensive response and a continuous assessment of whether that response is working and whether it should be better or can be better or try things that are better. There isn't a perfect public health program for any uh, problem. There are public health programs that look at their data in real time with brutal honesty to say, this is working, this is not, and quickly use that to give better and better services for patients. We need to be very clear about what our outcome must be. And it must be first and foremost, that we save as many lives as possible. William Farr, a great biostatistician from the 1800s said, The death rate is a fact. Everything else is an inference. Yes, I'd like to see people off drugs, but I want to make sure they stay alive long enough to stay off drugs. Dr. Frieden, you made my day. You absolutely made my day because that's what I do here. And people like don't want to hear it, but I say we need to do contact tracing for overdoses. And we're starting to do that. We have a, a narcotics team that goes to every overdose um, in a law enforcement sense. And now we have um, a, a healthcare team that goes there to help with grievance. And I want them to be contact tracers. Like, who else is at risk? That person died, but they may have a sister or brother or a school or community or a church or a bar where other people are at risk and we need to do contact tracing. And people look at me funny, but now I can say that you said it. 
And, and... and the key is to assess all of those programs. Uh, in public health, we should either implement a proven program or rigorously evaluate the program that we're implementing. Yeah, that is awesome. Um, so tell us, uh, behind you, you have resolved to save lives. So tell us about your new, new mission. Not so new. We're five years in now at Resolve to Save Lives. Uh, it's a wonderful opportunity. We work primarily in low and middle income countries on true, two broad problems. First, how can we reduce the risk of epidemics and pandemics? And second, how can we save 100 million lives from heart attacks and strokes? And over the past five years, we've partnered with countries around the world to make real progress in both of these areas. We're seeing countries in Africa able to find and stop outbreaks in hours or days instead of weeks or months. More than 3 billion people around the world are now protected from artificial trans fat, a toxic chemical that in the past killed half a million people each year. And with global elimination of artificial trans fat, again, using a communicable disease approach, elimination in the non-communicable disease world, that could save more than 17 million lives over 25 years. And we're scaling up treatment of the world's largest killer, high blood pressure. Hypertension kills more people than all infectious diseases combined in an average year, and more people than COVID at its most deadly. And yet it's quite preventable and quite treatable. And we're grateful to be working with more than 30 countries on scaling up low cost, effective, high quality diagnosis, treatment, and monitoring of high blood pressure, something that can save millions of lives a year. Wow, what, what a, a goal, lofty goal, but if anybody can get that done, I'm sure you are the one to, to lead that effort. I wanna say thank you to Dr. Wong. He succeeded me as chief of the emergency department and has been an incredible leader directing our department through a pandemic, a cyber security attack, staff shortages, medication shortages, and crisis after crisis. Really a simple thank you is not enough. And thank you, Dr. Frieden. I will always be grateful for you, for your leadership in the opioid crisis and the addiction crisis. And I thank you and wish you the best in your resolve to save lives. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and thanks for the work you do. Uh, and uh, looking forward to hearing about even more progress and success with your efforts. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their medical library translated for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Thank you.